Hello and welcome to Super Saturdays, a comic book media podcast where we rank media by its story, impact, and visuals to figure out if these projects will stand the test of time. I'm Damon A. And I'm Jay Hayward. And each episode will be focusing on your favorite comic books, TV shows, and movies. And this week, Damon and I are taking the subspace highway to the distant, fantastical land of Toronto, Canada. We're talking love, betrayal, music... And so much more as we scour the tale of Scott Pilgrim versus the world. <laughs> Hello and welcome, Soups, to an amazing episode that's been in the works ever since this show was conceived. Okay, so, you know, as usual, you guys would know that we, we always start with asking what was happening in the comic book world. But, Jay and I thought it would be best to introduce a new segment, especially because if we were to do our usual thing, we'd be talking about two different dates. And... Yeah, too much too much history. And we want to get to the point of the show. Yeah. And th- this week, within the last weeks, there's been a lot of big news that's came out. So, so this is our new segment that we'd like to call news roundup okay news roundup okay so the first bit of news is the spider-verse has been delayed to 2026 yes Mm -hmm. yeah originally it was going to come out in march of 2024 less than a year from the first film now this isn't unheard of uh, Pirates of the Caribbean is the, weirdly enough the first thing that comes to mind. They did Dead Man's Chest and At World's End. Avengers now, did that too. That Avengers did that too. That's right. They made uh, Infinity War and Endgame at the same time, so it's not unheard of. But that's live action stuff, guys. And for those who have seen Across the Spider Verse, which looking at the box office success being on top of the charts for like since the film has come out, um, I'm sure everyone has. The animation in that is stellar. However, not worth a lot of the uh, overtime and and uh, over asking of the uh, the corporate over at Sony. Yeah, a lot of the workers and animators have like come out and have been on record saying that the working conditions for that movie was kind of ass. Um, there was a lot of rewrites that happened behind the scenes. There were a lot of like deadlines that they needed to be they needed to be pushed. And some of them even said that it's honestly surprising of how good the movie came out. And one animator even said that there's about four different versions of the movie floating around in theaters. So there's some yeah. theaters who don't see small little bits of clips or whatever. But that would explain why I went to see it twice. And then the second viewing, there's little things I didn't notice. And I was like, oh, I don't remember that being in there, but okay. Now, one thing that's also really cool about that is that's actually very common in film history. It's not something that you see very often now, but that happened a lot, even mainly with live action stuff. Depending on different city or county, every version of the film could be cut. And for those who are big Clue fans, when you were at the theater, a different ending would be different for each theater as to who did it at the end of Clue. So it's nothing too unheard of. But the fact that it's just so sprinkled in, it makes people wonder how they're going to handle it for digital. I think they're going to put like deleted scenes and call these alternative versions deleted scenes and uh, go from there. 
but uh, who knows? Still a like wild, right, Damon? Like that yeah. is just fucking insane that they were able to do that in such a crunch time. Yeah. As well as the uh, the short, the Miles Morales short, where he has the panic attack. Did that come out yet? I'm not sure, but the fact that they're doing it on yeah. top of everything else is like they don't have to do that, but they just they just kind of want to do it. I love it. No, we didn't ask for it, you know. I love it. Spider Verse was fantastic, and I hope everyone goes and sees it. Our next yep. thing on News Roundup, we got some video game news. So, Tons. some of these games have already been announced, but just wanted to put it out there that they're still being worked on. Spider Man 2 comes out later this year. We got a big trailer Ooh. for Venom. Uh, we even got a little snippet of Tony Todd as Venom. Exciting. Candyman is Venom. Love that shit. Uh, Wonder Woman is still a game that's being worked on. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's being made by Monolith, and the game is going to be open world and focused primarily on the Greek and like ancestry lexicon and all that type of stuff. With uh, so ambitious, yeah. Uh, Wolverine is still a game being worked on by the Insomniac team. Uh, rumor has it that Steve Blum may be the voice of Wolverine in this game. Oh. What a fantastic choice, honestly. Yeah. He's been voicing Wolverine for a couple of years now. He's almost like the quintessential voice right now, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it, it makes sense to have him there. We still haven't gotten a whole lot of look at really anything, no gameplay, no, uh, you know, I'm sure they're working a lot on Spider-Man still, making sure that that's all good, so. But, but I'm sure a back team will get some stuff soon, but just some graphics, a couple, I think a new poster has come out that I see in floating around, Has which there? looked really cool. I think so. It could have just been a fan thing that I had seen, but if not, it there's still excitement for the Wolverine game, which is really cool. Okay. And um, I also saw, if, if you don't mind, Damon, no, I'm going to go take this it. one. Um, and I'm really excited for this one. We're getting an Iron Man game. Like, yeah. we're getting an Iron Man game in Unreal Engine 5. It's going to look fantastic. Only thing I'm worried about is that it's going to be from EA, which can be a big hit or miss company with these kind of things. Yeah. And they haven't made a Marvel game in such a long time. Actually, EA had a whole contract with them back in like 2005. Uh, back in mm. 2005 mm. for this game called Marvel Nemesis, which was kind of like a precursor to Marvel's Ultimate Alliance. I remember that. Yep. Mm hmm. Uh, did you ever get to play that game at all, Damon? I did. I loved that game. It was very dark. Uh, and what other game will have Spider-Man say, that was, that's what we call a web-slicking ass-kicking or whatever. <laughs> like, damn. Straight honestly, from the DS to you. Yeah. No, honestly, early 2000s Marvel was a different time because it was a lot more mature in the ways that I feel like Marvel today wouldn't do. Not at all. They were really trying some wild stuff, and they, they had a much more serious tone. It felt like they were kind of competing with DC in their own weird little ways when you think about it, which kind of makes sense at that time, because that was kind of the studio that was doing well in that kind of more cinematic feel at that time. Obviously, things have shifted, but at the very least, they got like more of their properties out. We had seen good few Superman films and Batman films at that, at that point. you know. One big thing that I wanted to say that came out a little bit earlier this week. The Batman yes. Arkham games are coming to the Switch this fall. Dude. Did you hear about that, Jay? Yeah, I have heard about that. That was, uh, for those who don't know, I'm a huge Nintendo Switch fan. 
I have the special edition Splatoon 3 Switch because I'm a huge Splatoon 3 fan. I'm a that's my favorite video game console of all time is Nintendo. When I heard about this, I was like, there's no fucking way that this little engine that could can handle Arkham Knight when uh, they couldn't even handle a PC port in 2015 when the game came out. So I have no idea how it's going to look. Arkham Asylum, I'm expecting it's going to look great, but that's a 360 game. Uh, Arkham City, I'm a little nervous. Like, I'm well, nervous that I'm my... No, that was the Wii U. They're probably just porting over the Wii U version. Uh, if they are, that would be cool because that was only for the Wii U. The Armored Edition, that's what I kind of want, personally, because I never got to try that. But I also know that all the DLC is going to be available, so like being able to play the Joker. I will say I have bought the Arkham Trilogy on everything. When it came out one by one, when they've had it in a box set. Some of my favorite games. I will buy it for the Switch. Will not be my primary way to buy it or, or to play it. But in the same way how I bought Bioshock for the Switch. What are you thinking, Damon? Are you going to get it? Fuck yes. And it's wild because I, was, I actually was thinking about this a while ago. Because I got my Xbox 360 out because Damon doesn't have a big console. Because he sold mm -hmm. his money to get money um so got my xbox 360 out and i was really tempted to go to a store and buy some of the arkham games because i've been missing it uh i recently got ultimate spider-man on the xbox and it's been playing that and i'm like oh you know, dude that's some... so sick yeah love that game the game still holds up to me mm -hmm. all right so it was announced yesterday at the time of this recording the leads for john for james Gunn's new superman movie superman legacy he announced the casting of Superman and Lois Lane. Playing Lois Lane is Rachel Brosnahan. Love her. Started watching Ms. Maisel last summer, and I got to say, that show is fantastic. And it's wild because yes. I actually was thinking about right when I started watching it last year. I was thinking about how she would make a really good Lois Lane. Oh, really? Yeah, like I, that was my thoughts. That was literally my thoughts. Even when, um, remember Joe was telling you about Man of Steel issue number two? how that is like mm. it's just Lois Lane's issue it's told from her perspective i was imagining yes. that like when i was reading that she okay. fantastic great great and then okay then for superman this was actually a fan choice uh david cornsweat has Corn been casted david as Cornsweat. clark kent slash superman wild now yeah. i only know him for pearl that's that's the only thing I've seen him in. And, uh, I mean, I didn't have much to really say about him in that. But when I look at him, when I see his headshots, I can see it. which it, And it feels, like, kind of cool, you know? Yeah, he he has the look. Uh, he was good in Pearl. And he, honestly, I had a feel... I, I kind of knew he was going to get casted. Had a strong feeling. You did? No, you didn't. Come on. I did, because uh, the shortlist... Nah. The shortlist for like who was doing the screen tests last week uh, came out. He was on the screen. He was on the shortlist. Nicholas Holt was also on the shortlist for Superman as well too. Interesting. Okay. Okay. I, mm, mm, he's a great actor, but he doesn't really have the right look. No. Uh, not not like how this guy does. Yeah. Emma Emma Mackey was also on the li a list for Lois Lane as well too. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. What a. Interesting little short list. I like how it's uh, 
not like some bigger like named Hollywood kind of actors either here, especially like with David. My question for you, Jay, though, is um, what's your thoughts on this casting? Uh, so I don't know these actors very well personally. I I don't know a lot of their work, but they fit the look, and that's kind of like the big thing for me, I guess. Like, is if they have that kind of like boldness, uh, energy that the characters kind of need. And I feel like these guys can make it work. The way how I've seen like the headshots together as the idea of them being that on-screen couple, I think they can maybe make that interesting dynamic even just from how I know James Gunn's going to have it look cinematically. Okay. Yeah, I agree with you on that. In all honesty, go check out um, Marvelous Ms. Maisel. That fucking show is... It's great. It's it's a fun time. It actually ended this year, I think. Yes, it did. I heard about that. So it now it's gone into Jay's radar of a show has ended. Now I can watch it and tell everyone about it two years too late. Yeah. But that's uh, the that's the news. That's our news roundup. Damon, are you ready to get in the meat and potatoes of today's episode? Yes, I am ready. Okay. So, Jay, I got a question for you. What was your first introduction to Scott Pilgrim? I'm so glad that you asked. So I had heard about Scott Pilgrim a little bit in high school, but I really didn't have a huge interest in watching it. Um, couldn't really tell you why, but it was on like my list, you know, like backlog that I think everyone makes of, oh, I'm going to watch that sometime ever since streaming services have become such a norm in people's life to becomes like the new doom scrolling. Scott mm -hmm. Pilgrim was one of those that became part of my doom scrolling. And one time I went out, uh, like, up north to a lake for, like, a couple of days, a good few days. And I brought a portable DVD player and a whole bunch of movies that I had never watched. I had watched uh, Rise of the Guardians. I had watched 2001 Space Odyssey. And I had watched Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. I would watch these after I had had a wonderful day out up north in Amish country getting wonderful cheeses and breads and it was just a cozy little place where i could just pop in a movie and go to sleep and i had that with like rise of the guardians i had to like watch some of it fall asleep and watch it again like the rest of the different night but with scott pilgrim it had me hooked beginning to end i had no clue what the movie was going to be like before I thought that the poster was wild, and I didn't know anyone who had really talked about it. So having the opportunity to have gone in so blind to it was such a treat. I had loved it to death, and I wanted to know more about it. And ever since then, I have gotten the graphic novels, or yeah, they would be like graphic novels or comics, however you really want to describe it. And I have the game. When it was re-released, I have it digitally on my Switch. I have a physical version that came with a card from Limited Run Games. And, yeah, I, I also have, like, a Ramona Flowers Funko Pop. Scott Pilgrim became a, one of my f comfort movies. And I got to see it, like, four or five times in the movie theater during its anniversary. Uh, it was, like, its 11-year anniversary because COVID was its tenure. And I went... Damon, you know, I went so many times to that. Yeah, and one time I we just went together, I'm pretty sure. Yes, we did. We did cuz I told you you had to see it in the like on that screen. How about yourself? 
What do you think about Scott Pilgrim? What was your first time? Yeah, my first time watching Scott Pilgrim would have to be on On Demand. Uh, it, it was on On Demand, and prior to that, I remember when uh, I actually... A classic on the show. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt, but just no, a classic. Good. Uh, you know, I remember back in 2010 when the movie was being advertised like crazy on Adult Swim, especially because they had like this little clip of like that little origin. It, it was literally the excerpt that we're going to talk about in the book where you learned a little bit about Scott's background when they were in high school and he met his one friend, uh, Lisa, Lisa Miller. And that was animated and they had the same voice actors from the movie. Um, I remember that was playing on Adult yes. Swim and I remember there's just like Adult Swim fucking advertised the fuck out of this movie. And I remember I wanted to see it, but I just, we just never went to go see it in theaters. So then it was on demand, mm. finally watched it on demand. I liked it a lot, but I didn't really understand it because this is Damon in middle school not understanding it. Um, mm-hmm. And I'd say I finally went to like rewatch it uh, when I went to go see it in theaters uh, for that anniversary. And I seen it in Dolby, so the audio is fantastic. I love the fucking music. Yes. That was an experience. Like I was really sucked in primarily because of the music. The music was fantastic. And I think a little bit prior to that, I uh, was doing a little bit of research on the comics and just the story itself. So I was very curious. But that curiosity was primarily like poked because of like Jay. Because <laughs> Soup's, she was obsessed. So we were talking about it a lot. So I was just yeah. curious. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was curious and I was uh, watching this one video that's by Dominic Noble where he's going by, uh, he's going into detail about the differences between the book and the movie. And it poked my interest to really want to read the comics a little bit more. So that would be my experience with Scott Pilgrim. And one thing I just want to add is Scott Pilgrim is an asshole. That's all I have to say. Yes. Scott Pilgrim is a prick. He is a... But he gets better. But he is a prick. Mm, There's certain things that are irredeemable. But we're not going to talk about when he gets better. For the sake of this episode, Soups. And also because Damon only has the oversized volume one slash colored edition of Scott Pilgrim. Yeah. That and I got the classic uh, black and white versions with a couple variant covers. Correct. So, for the sake of this video, we are going over the first two volumes of Scott Pilgrim, which is Scott Pilgrim's Precious Little Life and Spot yeah. Scott Pilgrim versus the World. And we're also going to be going back and forth a little bit about the movie as well, too. This is going to be a discussion. Yep. And for the sake like of Like always. Exactly. For the sake of this video... We're naming this video Scott Pilgrim Part 1, because who knows? If you guys like it enough, we might come back for a Part 2. Big episode this week. Yeah. So, are you ready to dive in, Jay? Oh, Damon. Take it away. Let's dive in, Soups. Okay, so Scott Pilgrim is a series of graphic novels by Canadian author and comic book artist Brian Lee O'Malley. The series is about Scott Pilgrim, a slacker and part-time musician who lives in Toronto, Toronto, Ontario, and plays bass in a band. He falls in love with an American delivery girl, Ramona Flowers, but he must defeat her seven evil exes in order to date her in peace. That is a very generalized summary because there's so much more. (laughs) Uh, but you know, so there's, much. There's a couple of things I want to talk about. Just you know, a little bit of notes. I remember a while ago, Jay, we were talking about this, and I think we we're talking about this maybe two years ago. 
and I was talking about how I was reading the book, and I noticed that like it's really they make a big point to show that Scott has like an X Men logo on his like sleeve. They even show it in the movie. Oh yeah. Uh, they make more of a big deal about it in the book, but in the movie, it's like it's like a subtle like little joke. That's it. And uh, obviously, this isn't a Marvel story, but I'm pretty sure you told me that like there's a fan theory that Brian Lee O'Malley made this uh, book in mind that like oh this takes place in the same world as the X Men. It's like if you look at it like that, it makes it even more interesting. And I couldn't stop thinking about that during this reread. Yeah. No. The, the idea is, like, there is just this X-Men quality. Brian Lee O'Malley is a big X-Men fan, and I think I could be wrong because I was reading a whole lot of this more in, like, 2021, so I didn't really refresh myself a whole lot, but I believe Brian Lee O'Malley did get to work a little bit on some X-Men comics after this or around this time. I can't quite recall, but regardless, he's a big X-Men fan, and... um. He, he made it really work as well for the universe that he's in and having that kind of, like, mind. And it also really puts into perspective the kind of normacy that exists for these people to just have these super cosmic fights and then kind of just go back to their day-to-day. Like, this is normal everywhere in the world, and it's just kind of, like, in a world where it's, like, come to its weird peace with it. Now, it is really so warped and surreal where Brian Lee really does make it like its own take of like a lot of video game fighting influence, you know, which you see a lot in Edgar Wright's film. Uh, but yeah, no X-Men, I, I think is, is something that was a huge launch off point for Scott Pilgrim to even be a thing. Yeah. Cause like, honestly, like me reading it, it kind of is like, okay, that would kind of explain why they just accept everything as the norm. Like, oh, okay, cool. This is what happens. Uh, I learned recently that, like, something that isn't explained in the book, but Brian Lee O'Malley has said is, like, canon to the book, is that when a person dies or, like, when you see Scott kill one of the exes or whatever, and they turn into coins, they're not actually dead. They just respawn back at home. Yeah, they respawn back at home, and they're, like, they're good. Like, they're just like, oh, I'm, I'm better than this. Like, they just kind of become good people. And yeah. so they still exist in this Scott Pilgrim-esque world, which I think is so that way Scott or Brian Lee O'Malley can always, if he ever wanted to, I don't think he will ever, but could do stuff again in the future. He likes doing a lot of art, especially of Ramona Flowers and Kim Pine. He he really likes drawing like his women characters a lot. Uh, I couldn't really tell you why. I make it sound like it's really creepy, but no, like he he takes a lot of time to draw a lot of fan favorites and it kind of makes it feel like these characters still live and breathe with him mm-hmm. past this point. And, you know, you see it with a lot of different, like, anniversary concert stuff that happened and the way how people have appreciated the film. Sex Bomb has become a staple for a lot of people. I have Garbage Truck plays uh, in my Spotify playlist, if you remember that song, Damon. Yeah. It's before Matthew Patel comes out, the first X. I love that song. I love the music in that movie. The music in that movie is really, really good. Uh, I, I got to say something. with um, So for this episode, I did a little bit of research, and some of it is just already stuff I knew about. But the Scott Pilgrim movie did not do good at the box office. Like, it was a flop. And I think, um, based off of the reviews, it was primarily because people didn't understand what it was supposed to be. Because some people thought it was supposed to be, like, an homage to video games, and I think they even tried marketing it like that. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, or they tried to market it as like a dude bro type of like thing or whatever. But a lot of people didn't realize it was like not really. Well, it is a reference to it, but it's more like the book referenced it. So they were doing mostly what the book was doing. But yeah. to put it to live action, people were like, well, what are you referencing? Because people didn't realize it was a comic book. I, I think it was just, yeah, a little too, this is going to sound really funny, but ahead of the time. Yeah. Like, if this came out in the 20 teens, I feel like it would have been handled differently all around the board. And I don't know if it would have the same kind of following. Scott Pilgrim fans really enjoyed it. Just for some reason, because of how the film was marketed, it didn't entice a lot of people, which was unfortunate for the time. Now, obviously, the movie's made its money back, when, you know, in its longevity. Cult classic. Um, exactly. But regardless of that, yeah, no, it, it did not see a whole lot of success. Now, Precious Little Life had a lot of really great success when it was first released. And that really grabbed Edgar Wright's attention, like, straight away. And a lot of people knew him for Hot Fuzz. A lot of people knew him for Shaun of the Dead. So this was something a little, like, different. You know, you're not seeing Simon Pegg all the time. And trying to see how that dynamic would really work from page to screen. And I think the fact that Brian Lee O'Malley was there for, like, hands-on with the project so much is what made the film and the book very one-to-one. Um, but especially when they got near the end of the series, uh, it was still being released as the film was being made. So things actually changed a lot of perspective working on the film Got that influenced. Yeah, yeah. And it caused like some differences for how he handled the books. But we really only get to scratch the surface of Scott Pilgrim versus the world. It gets handled really quickly. But believe it or not unlike the pace of the movie we really do take our time to get to know these characters and i can see the influence of the humor and the writing that edgar wright is able to take from brian leo o'malley's work in the book and i just i i love his his art now i know you have the colored edition which i'm sure looks fantastic but to me i always see these characters in black and white so being able to picture in my own head what it looks like around them it enables a weird fantastical view for me. Hmm. Precious Little Life grabbed me so quickly that I was so surprised that I didn't just read this before the movie, but I'm so glad that it was the other way around because it allowed me to see different perspectives. Another one that I enjoy. Got Pilgrim is 22 in the movie. He starts as 23 in Precious Little Life. So I've been Scott Pilgrim's that. age for two years. You've been Scott Pilgrim's age for two years? Oh. Yeah. You're comparing yourself to Scott Pilgrim? No, just the age. Just like I look at where Scott Pilgrim was and I look where I am and I'm like, man, I am totally not a Scott Pilgrim. Okay, good. And that feels good. That is good. That is good. That's what I'm what, saying. Once again, Soups, Scott Pilgrim is the scum a of prick. the earth. He's a prick. However, I'm I know that like later in the books he does have like a little redemption arc and everything. He has a fantastic redemption arc. And that's the other thing is what I'm saying about the pacing. In the film, it is like just in the span of the weeks. But we go through like three years or something like that in the books. Yeah. And like Precious Little Life goes over the span of like a good couple of months, but is only like the first 15 minutes of the movie. Precisely. You know, something that was really, that was really interesting to me, because I know that like, 
you can't put everything into a movie, which is why I no. think I'm, I'll never forget you and I were talking about this during the whole anniversary and everything of this uh, year or two ago. And I was talking about how I could see them doing an animated series. And yes, long and behold, they're doing it. I guessed it uh, with the original cast, too. And yes, they said it's going to be more of an anime. But I'm wondering, is it going to be anime in the sense that it's going to adapt his artwork or is it going to be like an anime anime? A part of me feels like it's going to be them adapting his artwork into. Oh, anime. totally. I think it's going to be that. But I, I think, I think that too. And I'm so excited because now we're actually going to see a direct leap from book to screen, yeah. like in a in a way that is so one to one. And people will actually get to see, I think, a longer progression to see how Ramona and Scott do become better people by the end of the story. In a way that leaves the movie kind of wanting. Yeah, you, I, you, I love the movie, but it just it felt like it felt like um, it made our two leads a little bit more one dimensional. In that, yes, that is them. They're very similar to their comic book counterparts, but we're lacking the depth that we got in later volumes. Uh, right. Based off doesn't of make it bad now. though. Yeah, it doesn't make it bad, but it's just something that I've noticed and. I will say the one thing that I have in my notes that's really big and starking and I even underlined a couple of times is uh, Scott is different in the book than he is in the movie. And that also goes into something else I wrote is that like the book has a lot more like edge and snark in some of the things that the characters say that's different in the movie. And it makes me wonder, well, it makes me think about how there's so many things that people can interpret differently when it comes to creating an adaption of things. Uh, Scott in the book, he's a little bit more confident. His confidence is more like cockiness a little bit and a little bit mm -hmm. arrogant, more arrogant. Whereas in the movie, he's played by Marco Sarah, so he's like more awkward and he's more like quiet. And I don't know. I personally kind of wish we got book Scott, but it made me think about how did Edgar Wright cast... Michael Sarah because he's more you wouldn't be able to un like notice him off rip being a jackass whereas Book Scott you can instantly know okay he's an asshole um they the reason I I believe they chose Michael Sarah was just because Edgar Wright thought it would be so funny to see Michael Sarah beat the shit out of people hmm. like just the concept like look at him <laughs> Okay, you yeah. know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, think about how Michael Sarah looks and then be like, well, I can't tell people that I got my ass kicked by Michael Sarah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like, it, it's, a, it's a different, like, so that alone, but I thought that Michael Sarah was a fantastic cast. Like, I think really? that this was the perfect cast. You couldn't, like, if you took anyone out of this film, it would not be as good. I'm so glad they're all coming back. And and here's the thing. Some people could maybe argue, what makes this different from Lord of the Rings getting a series? What's making this different from Harry Potter being remade in a, in a, into a series? That stuff, we got to really see everything. You got yeah. to really see Bilbo and Frodo's journey. Now, granted, Lord of the Rings is, series is different. Like, that's, like, stuff, I believe, like, prequel. I have not watched it. I'm not a huge Lord of the Rings fan. Love it. Love the first three movies anyway um harry potter is fucking pointless 
We got seven. It's films. just it's just because it's fucking pointless. Yeah. We we got everything from the movies, and it's just gonna be super long now. It's just gonna be overly long for things that we've already seen done by a fantastic cast already done. And you already have like what two, three theme parks based off yeah. that. So what you're gonna redo your theme parks, or you're gonna make your show look like your movie? In which case, then what is the point? Yeah, and then honestly, this... I noticed that with animation, mm. they uh. People are a lot more receptive and accepting of being giving direct adaptions to animation than they are in live action. And I'm wondering, is it because with uh, live action, a lot more people want to put their mark on an adaption through live action? Mm. Whereas with animation, it's more of like a direct type of thing. It's like, okay, our art style is based off of this. So there's you're like more willing to be closer to the source material if your art if your art direction is that I don't know I'm I, yeah I, I always wondered why is it that animated adaptions are always usually closer to the source material I I think it's due to that I think it's because you have to understand the source material better than say when you do live action like think of all the times we've seen like comic book films and we've had directors and cast say like they never picked up a book. And that's what made things like Henry Cavill so exciting because he knew the story. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes James Gunn so exciting because like he grew up on this stuff. That's what makes like all this stuff so exciting that things are kind of making a turn now. Um, Marvel needs to kind of fucking straighten this themselves. That AI bullshit. They can't keep doing that. But I mean, other than that, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's so huge now. Right. Um, and with that, it just allows there to be a better pacing, I think, as well, that can be done through the ability of having it as an animated series, um, which allows the actors to just get to know the characters longer and become a bit more a part of what it's like to be that person in their shoes. And I think it's so amazing to have the cast come back because they've already stepped their feet into this. And it really shows that when people worked on the movie, they were fans of the story first. And that's why I think, to me, they're like a perfect cast. Because everyone became a Scott Pilgrim fan because they were part of the movie. Yeah. And they wanted to be a fan of it, you know. And because they got to actually sit and have a drink with Brian Lee O'Malley and get to, like, know where the sausage is made. And I feel like that's what made Harry Potter especially at the beginning, so enchanting. You know, when you allow that collaboration, it becomes really good. And now that they're going to allow it to breathe in a way that it has never before, I think that's also what makes it so exciting, you know? Mm. I agree with you on that. Um, I got a lot of different notes I wanted to dive into. Yeah, I, I just yeah. Say, you, so b- before we get into this even further, uh, I want to say this. When I started reading the book, I realized I liked the book a little bit better than the movie. Are we, uh, what, yeah, so I, I wanted to ask you that. So the book, is, let's start with Precious Little Life, right? Yeah. Talk a little bit about that. And uh, I want to know what your thoughts were with that because that connects a lot with the movie. What about it made it feel better to you? Now, I, Scott's confidence, the way how he's more cocky, I get that because then – you feel like everyone kind of looks at him as like that douchebag, but just like he's the guy in the friend group. We have to have him. He's just yeah. always here. 
Yeah, because like in the book, it's like his friends are a lot more like cold and a lot more just honest and saying like, "What the fuck are you thinking, um, Scott?" And yeah, uh, he just is more like a jackass in the books, and I think it gives that little that gives you that extra edge, and it seems more realistic to me. Him just being like yes. being more of an asshole. And Everyone knows a Scott Pilgrim. Yeah, like everyone like when i was reading this i could like tell there's a couple of different people i like knew when i was younger or have met that was like this dude and it's weird because it's like he's kind of like a man child in some ways too because yes he has this cockiness this confidence but it, i wouldn't even say it's confidence because it feels fake and um especially he has like this grandiose view of different things he it's it's so weird uh he talks about his band saying they suck and he's like really pessimistic and, ne- and negative and o- on a lot of different things or downplays things. And you can tell that his friends are like this close to like snapping at him. But this motherfucker. And then and then he drops the bomb. The very beginning of the story that Scott Pilgrim is dating a high schooler, a 17 year old and a 17 year old. Yeah, it's so weird now. Obviously, that is some pedo territory, and I believe the movie changed it slightly to make it be less creepy by having him be, I think, younger, 22, and then having Knives <laughs> turning 18 soon, whereas yes. in the book, she's freshly 17, and he is 23 turning 24. Now, I will say... One thing that was good about how Brian Lee O'Malley handled that relationship to make it so that way, by the end of the story, you can see Scott being redeemable, is the fact that they never, like, did anything too intimate. Yeah, nothing It was always knives that kind of pushed it, and it was very clear in both that, like, Scott has no fucking clue what he's doing. But regardless of it, it's fucked up. Like, in, in reality, it is fucked up. But I will say, for the sake of the story, it improves. It gets better, and you understand more of the psychology as to the fact that Scott is just a spiraling tornado. Like, this dude just doesn't... It just proves that he just doesn't know what to fucking do with his life. And he's just, like, floating. And I think the reason why it's, like, a high schooler is the fact that Scott never really left high school. Yeah, especially when we got that little flashback. And I'd say that, like, this oh, beginning yeah. volume did such a good job of making him an insufferable asshole, uh, especially even the comments towards Knives. And something about yeah. our cast being predominantly white and um, Scott making a big deal to say that she's Chinese. Yes. It's giving fetishization. Uh, yeah. I'm just going to be blunt soups. It's giving, he's fetishizing her, and it's weird. And and his sister does bring it up. You say like, sister? she is like, that this is fucked up. Like, that's the yeah. other thing, too, about this story that I that makes it easier for me to stomach about these situations and appreciate it and still see the story progression is because there's no one in Scott's life that's like, good for you, except, like, the Stephen dumb Stills. teenager of the group. Steven Stills, Steve, well, Steven, was like, well, Steven Stills is like fucking, yeah, he's, he's just weird. like stupid. Yeah. He's just weird. And uh, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, uh, can we get uh, the little siren up here real quick? Wait a second, wait a second. Are you going to talk about something in the later volumes? 
Yes. Um, just a little, just it's just one okay. little thing, and and I have to bring it up because we're. Oh no! This is this will come out as we're recording this. It's still Pride Month, but as this comes out, it won't be. So oh yeah, it comes out for He's a little gay. Pride Month thing. He is gay. Yeah. And so it shows. Or bi, um, right? No, he's gay. Okay. He. That's the thing is, while you're watching Scott's story, one thing that the books do so much better is you get to see how everyone else is kind of like struggling with like becoming these adults. And And that's like the whole thing is like struggling to understand that like the high school years are over. Never really breaking boundaries, which is good. That allows us to never hate these characters. But they just told the line enough where it feels as though they can't be redeemable in their own aspects. And Steven Still's stuff is done so like in under the water because Scott doesn't pay much attention. But as Scott becomes better as a friend, we as the audience can become better insightful with the uh, his friend group. And you can feel that progression in everyone in their own ways, even though we're not always following other people, which we do in the book. We, we follow around people a lot more than just being through Scott. Like, um, and we'll bring it up when we talk more about versus the world comic, but like, when we get to hang out with like Ramona and stuff and see what she does. But yeah, besides that, like it, it shows that kind of like struggle. No one really knows what they're doing. They're in a band that sucks. Their only fan is the 17 year old and, and young and, Neil. I love young Neil. I love young Neil. He's great. Yeah. I would say, uh, you know, you bring up the whole Steven Stills thing. I'm remembering now um, something that I heard is that, like, if you start from the beginning of the book, knowing what you know about him being gay, there's little things that are, like, done in the background where you basically see the progression to that. And some people even theorized him saying that negative stuff at the beginning was him trying to, like, perpetuate, oh, I'm straight, I'm supposed to say this. Yeah. When in actuality, that's not what he's thinking. Uh, Great storytelling. And honestly, even when you said that... um we start seeing more of his friends backgrounds and stories or whatnot that's unfolding as he becomes closer with his friends that's a great touch as well too i would say that uh, uh my favorite character in these two books though yes. would have to be kim yes i love kim, kim. is the best kim was i have a big crush on though. kim kim was done the dirtiest and uh yes I would say, yeah, Kim is great. Kim is great. Yeah. She's hilarious. And I don't know. It it was fun, especially seeing her little backstory and just a lot of different things. And she's the one who's the most skeptical of Scott. And not even skeptical. I'd say flat out, like, just calling him out, reading him to filth. But I think as the reader, you don't really – I don't want to say you don't pay attention to it because it's very clear as day. But the book kind of downplays the way she's basically reading him to filth. But it's almost, yeah. but it, you could even argue it's from the perspective of Scott. So, so even Scott isn't really taking what she's saying as serious. Yes. Yes. And, and that's the thing with it, too. Um, I mean, there's still a lot I want to talk about with Precious Little Life. I want to talk about Matthew Patel and stuff. But real quick, because you brought up the adult swim short, the beginning of Versus the World is that short and we get a whole lot more information in the comic and some of it just becomes a montage in the uh in the adult swim short 
but it does a fan fantastic job articulating that and it gives a lot of insight for kim pine and only people who had seen that short will then have that in, like look on her in the film and it makes her interesting in the movie too mm-hmm. there's kim pine is such a fantastic character and she gets some of the worst shit and she gets better and that's the thing is we get to see that progression between them throughout the rest of the books and it's it's all done just so little by little and with being a first time reader or first time watcher you don't really think about it much because everyone is like him like that as well so what makes kim so different this is what makes kim so different who's your favorite and that's character cool. you know during this reading oh dude um probably kim like honestly like i really do love kim i love also seeing how knives progression is just a lot better handled than in the movie she doesn't get a whole lot of that progression in the same way and i feel like she's done probably the most dirty in the film yeah out of all the characters knives is is wonderful she is so sweet and so innocent she doesn't deserve any of the shit but she learns so much about herself too in the later books she has such an amazing turn and you become so proud of her at the end knowing how how better she is than all of these people mm-hmm. and that's like a cool thing too of this outside perspective because knives is so smart and she is just she's just lost of over this idea of someone finding something of her because she's just stuck in her own traditions and paths you know um so knives is a close second but kim always looking back through kim's story looking back and knowing where Kim and Scott are going to go again makes me so excited for the anime. Just like, dude, like, it's it's so fun to be a Scott Pilgrim fan. Honestly, yeah, I do like Knives a lot. And Knives, I, you, you touched on how, like, she, her her progression is done handled better in the book than it is in the movie. And I understand that you can't do everything in the movie. But yeah. I feel like they simplified her progression in the movie but when they simplified it, they cut out like some of the key points in when simplifying it. And uh, the one character though, who w- great, fantastic. They didn't they didn't really have to change anything, and they didn't change much. Uh, who I would say is my second favorite within these two books is Wallace Wells. Wallace yes. is so fucking hilarious. And Wallace, I'm pretty sure we learn why Wallace is so loyal to Scott later we do we learn mm-hmm. that later yeah no yeah like their their progression uh deepens a bit too okay um it's uh, it's mainly just at the end of the day though it's just because and you see it from precious little life alone mm-hmm. scott's just a loser scott's just a loser so and wallace, wallace i mean does wallace pity him oh totally it, like it gets established straight away like that's why wallace never lets up on him my goal is to just have that wallace wells energy of just being yourself and not letting shit kind of like change that. You know what I mean? Wallace is a fantastic character and he doesn't really change a whole lot in the story. He's one of the characters that stay consistent, especially in these first two books, but he's a fantastic character for comic relief as well as uh, character development. And he helps us keep uh, a more grounded look as into Scott's ridiculousness. The fact that you go through their apartment, which is just this cinder block uh, in the side of, like, 
the wall of somewhere and everything yeah everything in there belongs to wallace and it says like scott i think the only thing that that they showed was that scott only owns like his jacket i think that was it like a a pile of clothes yeah yes and and a a poster and a poster yeah Yeah. shitty poster i I just loved how even the movie was able to like do that diagram justice you know something that i learned doing some research for this episode is that brian lee o'malley um you know how so a lot of times whenever an artist is also the writer of a book or something like that they just have their own different type of way of working on things so you either Mm -hmm. have an artist draw everything out and then write it right in the dialogue when they're done or you have someone who plots it out uh brian lee o'malley when he was um i was doing some research it turns out he said that he basically writes almost like a movie script and he then draws based off of that and i think that's the reason why this book was so easy to translate well yeah to uh live action because some of these panel like panel work some of it is can be confusing but I think it's confusing because some of it is like camera movements almost or either things that require motion almost. Am I making sense? Mm. No, no, it does. It does make sense. Yeah. Um, now, we can't have Scott without Ramona and we can't have Ramona without the X's. So, before anything, I need to know from this, these two books, Matthew Patel or Lucas Lee, which one is your favorite? Honestly, based off the books, I would have to say Lucas Lee. He's, f- yeah, Lucas Lee. And then even in the movie, Lucas Lee, Lucas Lee, Lucas Lee, fantastic. Uh, in the book, I like that he was a, a chill dude. He was chill, and it was yeah. another moment where Scott is an asshole. And you know something I liked about in the movie is that uh, I know that we were talking about the differences between Scott as a character in the book and where he is in the movie. Him being an asshole still does shine through in the movie, but it's like, I think it's the type of asshole that makes me mad, personally. Mm. I hate the type of assholes who are very passive-aggressive with the fact that they're assholes. And movie mm. Scott gives me those vibes. So Whereas comic Scott, he's kind of just so out with it. Yeah. And just, like, incompetent about it. Yeah. Yeah. And... Yeah, like the way how he handles both the fights, too, shows that. Matthew Patel, he blows it off. Like, the way how you see it in the film is pretty close to how it is in the book. It's literally Um, the same, yeah. Yeah, like, I think maybe some of the wordings changed, but even, like, the flashback that Ramona has in the movie is the same. Like, they just pull it from the book. Mm -hmm. And I love Matthew Patel. They pull the actual, like, panels from the... Yeah, it's book. just panel for panel. Yeah. And I love that. I love how connected the book and the movie do get. Like, there is a collaborative effort here, even the, though they do take different avenues. That's cool. That's how you should interpret different work when you adapt it. That's how that that's something that I appreciate about it, even if there's things that I miss. Um, and Matthew Patel, I think, was done super, super well. Uh, I need to pull up the names of the evil exes. Because I want to get the actor's name. I should have pulled this up earlier. Uh, obviously, Lucas Lee is Chris Evans, Captain America. Um, so League of Evil Exes. Where is? I gotta say, my, this is completely off topic. So sorry. Huh. Uh, You're fine. A little tangent. 
My favorite joke ever in the fucking movie is when Scott is stalking Ramona at the damn party, and he goes up to the guy who knows everybody, and he's like, do you know a girl that looks like this? And it's like a picture of the squiggly lines. Yes. It's like faintly yeah. in the shape of Ramona's head. That shit is funnier than the book. Oh, my God. You know, yeah, it's, it's okay. yeah, and Precious Little Life, when uh, he just puts like his fingers down his sideburns, it is a little different. Yeah. Um, I'll have Editor Jay just uh, say the actor's name here. Sacha Baba. But uh, Matthew Patel is is just exactly how you get him, beginning to end. It's gonna be like that when the when the anime comes out too, I'm sure. But that's fine. Like he has a fantastic start, and the fact that Scott just really blows him off, because Matthew Patel sends him an email, like he's trying to keep so much communication he's the first gateway through and he's just so disrespected and it's funny and it's so in character lucas lee lucas lee is like if you just pay me i'll say you kicked my ass exactly like it, we don't have to do this but if we do i'll like i'll mess you up so i'm trying to get you an out whereas with chris evans he really is just like that bad boy and it works very well for the film but being able to see where he is in the comic especially because Lucas Lee is beginning to end in the comic. We get to see how Scott progresses and figuring out a way to handle each ex and getting to know how to figure out how to fight Lucas Lee. And that's when we get to the cinematic ending when he does a grindy thingy. And um, I just love that. I just enjoy how they've been able to... Find the essence of both the characters and bring it to life in different ways. Exactly. Uh, even though it was not too different from the comic, um, Matthew Patel just adds so much enthusiasm and really is the kickstart as to this is where the movie is gonna get really weird. You just got and the comic too. Like this is where things are going to get so bizarre. Luke and 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 Matthew Patel is just a perfect introduction to that, especially when we get into later exes. Um, I gotta say something that I wrote down that I also noticed as a difference between the books and the movie. The movie does a really good job of like doing its like humor, taking humor bits from the from the book, and you know it kind of feels like Edgar Wright made it his own with the humor that he went forward with. Cool, great, but. I feel like the book's humor got me at a couple of points, especially yeah. when it was, like, very meta at times. Uh, for example, there's a part where uh, one of the characters said, oh, okay, maybe that'll happen in volume four, maybe volume three. Or, like, the fourth wall breaks, or even mm -hmm. um, just some of the dialogue. And it's interesting, because, you know, earlier we were talking about how it was fat the movie's fast-paced compared to the book. The book... It was very fast-paced in the beginning, same type of pace that the movie started with, and then it slowed down as the book went further. And But there's yeah. moments where it like, ramps up. Uh, I kind of wish the movie kind of did something similar, because the movie still felt like it was just fast-paced all throughout the entire movie. Yeah, no, it, but that, that was just kind of like Edgar Wright's style that he was trying with the film as well, to kind of, because he's compiling a whole story that wasn't even finished yet wasn't even published into one hour and a half. And this is the only way that they're going to get something like this as big as it is, you know, like this really was a hail Mary kind of like how tank girl was for the, their creators. Yeah. Um, 
And kind of like how a lot of these different superhero movies kind of started off as because people just weren't into the idea. Now, granted, Scott Pilgrim isn't really like a superhero thing, but if it wasn't for comics and superheroes, we wouldn't have Scott Pilgrim. Precisely. You know something, uh, Scott Pilgrim, uh, I've noticed during the research for it, Brian Lee O'Malley originally did not like the idea of this being turned into a movie or any type of adaption because he felt as though the people... Oh. Yeah, he didn't like the idea of it. He felt that whoever was going to work on it was going to change so t- too much shit about the source material when adapting. However, money talks. He agreed because of money. And I don't blame him. Mm. I don't blame him. No, no, you can't. You can't. And especially for something as big of an intellectual property as it's become now, you know, with limited edition figures and Funko Pops, I have uh, two vinyls from the movie. I have one of the instrumentals, and I have one of all of, like, the soundtrack stuff. I would like a vinyl group from this movie. The the soundtrack is just fucking Um, amazing. My sound, my, my vinyl was the Ramona Flowers edition. So when I got it, I didn't know if it was going to be red, blue, or green, like our hair changes throughout the film. And that was really cool. I think mine came out as pink. Not red, pink. Um, And I just love that they get to be so fucking creative with that. And that's so wild. I had no clue that Brian Lee O'Malley was skeptical, especially when I think of the fact that, like, his style is still covered this film if you know his work, on top of all of Edgar Wright's stuff. Now, I gotta know real quick then, I know you're a fan of the books, between Precious Little Life and Versus the World, the comic, which one did you really enjoy, and why? Bitch, why are we on the same way, Leif? I was gonna ask you that same question right before you said that. No way! Oh my god. That was kind of wild. Daenerys, can you believe that stuff? That's what I'm saying. We're retiring that button. Anyways. I don't know. Howard's not going to like that. Daenerys, please. He really likes that duck. Daenerys, please stop uh, egging Jay on. Thank you. Anyways. I got to say, I liked Versus the World Thank you, Daenerys. Thank you. Go on, Damon. Okay, but no, I gotta say, with, with that, I would say Versus the World was better. And you want to know my reasonings why? My reasonings why is because we got a lot more meat and potatoes in this. We got a whole background for Scott. And also, the background gave us a lot of information. Scott was a dick in high school, too. He was rude as fuck to Lisa Miller. Uh, yes, Lisa was so sweet, so yeah. good, you know. And uh, it, I, it, honestly, though, even though him being him being dicky, it made me think about certain things because, um, on one hand, uh, some of the stuff that he, the way he was acting, and the way he was very dismissive and not really like uh, noticing things, and even when he said that he was, uh, he doesn't like being bothered when like chewing food and everything like that. Um, it made me wonder. This Scott Pilgrim is he, is he neurodivergent? Um, wow. Uh, and apparently, we're getting some heavy topics. And I, I'm not sure. I looked it up, and there are some fan theories, and I think someone said it may have been confirmed in canon. I don't know. 
Oh, so interesting. I, I got to look into that more. But soups, if you guys know, please let us know. That'd be pretty awesome if we if you that let us that know. could explain some things too. Um, in its own way, if you interpret it a different way, it can explain things in a new perspective than just the idea of him plainly being an asshole. I think that would that's interesting, but I've never I've never really heard about that much. Yep. Um, but I agree with you though. I love versus the world a lot more. Um, being able to get a little sneak peek into Envy Adams and what's going to happen next was like such a great little like uh, cliffhanger. Yeah, um, and knives Kim having her little thing too. Knives learning that um, she has been cheated on at this early on in the game as opposed near the end of the movie. Like, she gets that realization when they're fighting Gideon. And that's, like, a different... It, just because of that placement, it changes everything. It changes how Knives is going to respond because there is still, like, what? Four more books after this. Mm. So how is she going to respond to all of that? And the fight at the mall. I, I'm so looking forward to seeing how that's going to be done in animation. I I love the mall scene. I love being able to see Ramona's powers. I can't even believe we haven't talked about Ramona yet. We have to. Uh, yeah, but, I just remembered that. And Ramona had a lot more in the do in the book. Uh, so much more. And we kind of get to understand where she is. And, and the fact that she stays such a mystery. And then the mystery becomes so, like, warped and twisted. And I'll save that if we ever do a part two. And she has a glowing but, head. Yes, I, I will important. save. I will not tell you why. Yeah. I will keep that to myself. And, but and yeah, super strength, no. which they don't talk about in the movies. No, I, another thing that they don't really touch on a ton is the subspace highway. Yeah. So Ramona Flowers, I guess let's talk about her. Yeah. She has the ability to use the subspace highway. She works for Amazon.ca. If you want to use that website, that will be um, Amazon.ca. And... Yeah, she has all these different powers. She can go into Scott's dreams, like through the subspace highway, because that's what it is, is her using the powers to go through people's dreams to make it across in, in like no time at all. So it's like a teleportation in its own strange way. She has the ability to open doors. Think, think um, which man. Think uh, Morbius from... Uh, yes. Yeah, he does that type of shit. Yeah, yeah, just like that. Yeah. Um, and the movie doesn't really talk about it. Like we see it like a little bit, but it's done in like a stylized version of like them making it home. Like, and they replicate that from Precious Little Life of them uh, running to a door with a star on it. Very Super Mario Two. Um, they even play the song and... movie too, I think. I think, well, no, they play uh, a lot of Legend of Zelda music. Yeah, very well. Oh, no, my God. I'm thinking back to when I saw yeah. the theaters with Dolby. That shit sounded so good. Wasn't it so enchanting? It was. They they really handled that well. They like they respected the material that they were, like, showing inspiration and style to. Um, for, again, Switch fans, Tears of the Kingdom, it sounds just as good. But I think this is my favorite version of Fairy Well when I hear it on my on, uh my vinyl. I love getting to hear it. Um, man. But no, Ramona. She has this giant fucking mallet. Right? That can just cave people's heads in. So Harley Quinn. 
I love that kind of shit. And she's on the rollerblades and stuff. She's really badass. But she's such a mystery. And sometimes she can be such a dick. And something about that just draws Scott. And I think she missed um, in the movie. Ramona Flowers gets categorized as like a manic pixie dream girl whenever people bring up that trope because of the yes. movie. Whereas in the book, I feel like um, it's another case of uh, the movie having to simplify things because it's a movie. Ramona yeah. in the book, she has more of an edge, I'd say, similar to how like Scott had a kind of an edge in the book, too. Like Scott was like outwardly an asshole. But he also was, like, an asshole who would be, like, if you, like, pushed him, he'd be, like, what the fuck? Why did you fucking push me? Like, he'd, like, he's he's ready to fight. Like, he's on tip. Uh, Ramona, Ramona's very chill, but, yeah, like you said, she can be kind of rude. She can be a little brash, but she can be very blunt as well, too. Uh, in the, and she is still kind of aloof, but in the movie, I think they just primarily focused on her aloofness instead of focusing yes. on the other parts. I agree. She kind of, weirdly enough, gets a backseat, which kind of sucks because Scott Pilgrim's story is about everyone. Um, but she, it, it's also about her. You know, everything that Scott does is because of her. Uh, one thing that the movie does very well is you see that none of the actions that are done is because Scott goes forth and does it. It's other people that push him into the situation. And it's not until the end of the film when he finally makes a decision by himself. Um, and that is shown a lot through the books as well, uh, especially in these two. You know, he's not he's not really trying to, like, get his ass kicked, but he, he really just likes this girl. And it just shows how really complicated he's allowed his life to become because he's not really been an active part in his life. It's been other people that make him into these things. He's not a great bassist, but he's his friends are in a band. And that was something that meant something to him before in high school, but lost interest as he becomes a 23-year-old that's so lost in the past of what he left behind when he moved. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know. I feel like Ramona does a great job of showing like how Scott tries to grow into the idea of becoming a more active person. He can't get up to see knives for any point. He will think that it's like so early in the morning, but it's like one in the afternoon. But he's able to like get up and want to try to be active. And it's it's kind of cool in its own kind of way. And it feels so natural. And you start to see as to how these two could work together, but kind of just how much of a meltdown they are together. It's okay. it's so interesting of a roller coaster how how him and Ramona interact. And I think Ramona being this character of really just trying to live her life, not really a fan of the shit that happened before coming to Canada to try to fix things and redo her life. It it shows that she was trying to get on a different path and Scott kind of anchors her into another way that may not be good or it may not even be bad, but it's different. And she hopes that it's different and it it becomes very difficult. And you kind of wonder if he really is going to be different from Lucas Lee or Matthew Patel. And uh, I enjoy that. And Ramona brings that out of the character and allows us to see that external confrontation that is so internal in Scott that we don't get a whole lot of until we start to see him develop. I gotta say, what would you rate 
these two books? Uh, Out of five. Oh, uh, five. I have a bias, but I think these are fantastic. These are books that kind of kept me interested in the idea of even wanting to do Super Saturdays. Scott Pilgrim is such a great story, and because of that, I've read a bunch of other Brian Lee's work. Right now, I'm reading his story, Seconds, which is about this woman who had made this wonderful uh, restaurant, but now she's trying to start a new, but there's a lot of this different mystery and intrigue and like other dream states and stuff. I haven't gotten super far since we started the show because we've been reading other stuff and watching other stuff, but I would love to come back to Brian Lee's O'Malley's work with Seconds and see what you think, see what the soups think, and get a better understanding of what Brian Lee O'Malley does as a creator outside of just Scott Pilgrim, mm -hmm. which he's become so coined with, right? So you'd give the, this, these two books a five out of five? This is, yeah, this is my first, like, five out of five. This is something that I think is just a perfect read for especially someone who's growing up and becoming more into adulthood, whether you knew someone like this or even if you were like this. The, there's a dynamic or a character or something thematically I think everyone can kind of take from this. Whether you have uh, the original editions, whether you have these new uh, in-color editions, uh, or even if you're just a fan of the movie and kind of want to see what's going on after or what's really going on in between. It, I think it's just been handled so well besides its marketing when it first came out to be worth a read for anyone, especially as you're growing up. What about you, Damon? Um, I would rate the Precious Little Life a four out of five. Uh, okay. And I'd rate Versus the World five out of five. I liked both of these. No way, really. Yeah. It was a really good read. It was a fun ride, and Scott is a complete dick. And I personally don't really like Scott Pilgrim as a character. But I'd be lying if it wasn't a good written book and a good written story and a good movie. Uh, and I will say, this is our second time doing any type of story uh, with an unlikable protagonist. And I will say, I'm really curious about where the story goes forward. And I actually do want to read more Scott Pilgrim. Wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. And I hope that Soup's at home. We'll maybe want to hear next because we can then go to volume three and four and see what happens next in Scott and his uh, his next challenges and how it's changed from the movie still. I would love to talk about Scott Pilgrim more. Exactly. Same. I'd like to do it. But you know what? What do you guys think? Do you guys think that Scott Pilgrim's precious little life holds up? And do you think Scott Pilgrim versus the world's hold up? Be sure to give us your answers by reviewing the show or messaging us on Instagram at Super Saturdays Podcast, TikTok at Super Saturdays Pod, and Twitter at Super Saturday PC. Your messages and reviews can make their way on the show. This was Super Saturdays. I'm Damon. And I'm Jay Hayward. Make sure you also check out Damon and I on our Instagrams at Damon underscore 1003 and at Jay the Movie Gal. And be sure to join us next week when we talk about the man who can escape any trap mr miracle mr miracle the son of let's dark go side. all right see you next saturday soups <laughs>